pray together. Father, we pray that as we look into this text, you would help us to understand who we are as those made in your image and likeness. We pray, Lord, that you would also help us to understand our purpose, the purpose for which you made man in the beginning. And we pray that you would help us to have insight into how Solomon attempted what you had created Adam for and how only the Lord Jesus could pull it off. And Lord, we ask that you would make us those whose hope is fully and completely in him. And we pray this in his name and by the Spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <clears throat> and we will be looking at verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn there, I would invite you to consider these two questions. Who are you? Who are you and what are you here for? Who are you at the most fundamental level? What is your identity and what did God make you for? What is your purpose in life, in creation. I'm going to suggest that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Solomon shows us how he understands his own identity and purpose in God's creation, in the nation of Israel, and in redemptive history. I think in a way, what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11 is similar to Psalm 8, where David, Solomon's father, seems to understand his role as Israel's king, as a kind of new Adam figure whose purpose is to make the glory of God cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. And as we consider this text together, we should ask ourselves, what do we need to do to live out, live out our identity? And, and I think the identity that Solomon embraces here is the identity of the one who is, in, who is the visible image of the invisible God, the one who is in the image and likeness of God. That's how Solomon is presenting himself to us. And what he's doing to live out that identity is being an imitator of God as a dearly loved son. You know the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will raise up your seed. He will build a house for my name. He will be a son to me. And it seems to me that in this passage, Solomon has embraced that identity, and he's saying, as a dearly beloved son of God, I am going to try to live out the image and likeness of God. And that invites us to ask ourselves, what do I need to be doing to be living out my identity as one created in the image and likeness of God? And what do I need to be doing to, to pursue this purpose of filling the world with God's glory? Well, I've already anticipated um, what, what I'm going to suggest is our main application takeaway from this, and that is Ephesians 5.1. Uh, be, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So I'm going I'm to suggest that that's what Solomon is doing here in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, and he's modeling for us what it looks like to be dearly loved children seeking to be imitators of God. As we look at this passage, it's going to fall naturally into three parts. There, there's an, 
an outer frame in verses 1 through 3, and then verses 9 through 12, and then there's an intersection. And in this outer frame, in verses 1 through 3, what Solomon is going to do is test himself with joy. And he's going to command himself to see good. We'll talk more about that when we work through these verses. But he's going to test himself with joy in verses 1 through 3. And he's going to command himself, see good. And then in verses 4 through 8, um, you, you may remember when we, when we were in the book of Genesis, when we were in Genesis chapter 1, in days 1 through 3, it is as though the Lord formed the world. Early, early on in Genesis 1, we read that the earth was formless and void. And in days 1 through 3, the Lord forms the world. And then in days 4 through 6, he filled what he had formed. So he forms and fills. And I think that Solomon follows the pattern of the Lord's own activity in verses 4 through 8. And he first forms and then he fills. He's going to form a realm, a habitat, and then he's going to fill that habitat. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, he will assess the results of what he's done. It's almost like he gives himself a grade. He, he takes stock of what he's accomplished in verses 9 through 12. Uh, uh, before we um, proceed further, I'm going to ask that the, the slide uh, on the chiastic structure of Ecclesiastes 1 through, 2, 1 through 11 be put up. No, that, yeah, that one, that one. And I just want to draw your attention to the way that in verse 1, he says, behold, this also was vanity. And that word vanity, uh, the literal meaning of that word is breath. So we got breath at the beginning and then breath in verse 11, uh, where he says down in verse 11, um, behold, all was vanity or breath. And then inside uh, that, in verse 2, we have reference. Uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest that what's translated pleasure is really about joy. So there in verse 2, you find the word pleasure, if you're looking at an ESV. And then again in verse 10, we're going to have this word joy. And then only in verses 3 and 9 do we read of wisdom. So the outer frames are concerned with the, the, the way that everything is vapor or breath. But you can have joy if you live with wisdom. Those are the outer frames, breath, joy, wisdom. And then the inner portion is, again, verses 4 through 6, Solomon forming and then filling. Um, as, we, as we consider this passage, I want to say a word about the broader context. So if you would, then go to that next slide. There we go. So um, I think that the big question in this whole first section of the book, and I think the first section of Ecclesiastes starts in 1.1 and continues through 3.15, and I think the big question is what you see him state there at the beginning and the end. end. What gain is there in the toil? Or as the ESV puts it in 1.3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You can see that question asked again in 3.9, what gain has the worker from his toil? So that, that, I think, is the big issue in chapters 1 through 3. And um, af after introducing that question, what gain is there in the toil, uh, the, the second section, 1, 15 through 18, we looked at uh, last time we were together. And there, Solomon seems to address the vexation and the pain that comes from increasing in wisdom and knowledge. But he balances that with 3, 1 through 8, where he, he acknowledges that God makes everything beautiful in its time. So yes, it hurts to learn, but you also see the way that God th makes things beautiful. And then 
I, I think that what we're looking at here today in 2, 1 through 11 is really Solomon taking up Adam's task. He's saying, as, as the king of Israel, there's a sense in which I'm the new Adam in God's creation, and so my job is to take up the task that God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden and pursue that in the nation of Israel for the good of the world. And I think in, in 2, 24 through 26, uh, he comes to a conclusion about the value of what he's done. So uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this as we go through. The two central sections here of this first unit, 2, 12 through 17 and 18 through 23, in, in 12 through 17 of chapter 2, he's really looking at the way that everyone dies. He's going to die, and the fools are going to die. And that's going to bring an end to his labor. And then in the next section, 2, 18, 18 through 23, it's as though he considers who's coming after him. And we know who's coming after him from uh, the, the book of Kings. Rehoboam is coming after him, and Rehoboam's going to act like a fool. And, and it's as though he looks that reality full in the face, and he says, I have no control over whether the one who comes after me will be wise or foolish. Rehoboam's a fool, and, and, and that's, I think, in part, the fact that he's going to die and the fact that the heir could be wise or foolish, I think that, that's a, a large part of why he's saying this is all breath. This is all, if you go with the ESV's rendering, this is all vanity. He can accomplish these great works, but then his life is going to come to an end. He can do these great things, but then he's going to hand it off to someone who didn't work for it. So let's look together at this, this uh, outer frame, 2, 1 through 3, at what I think is the joy test that he sets for himself. So he says here in 2, 1, I set in my heart. So it's like we have this inner dialogue that he gives, that he He's talking to himself here. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. And again, uh, the word that's translated pleasure here is the same word that is going to be translated as joy uh, down in verse 26. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy in 2.26. Same Hebrew term is translated pleasure here. And I think the reason they translate it pleasure is because they're, the translators are skewing in a slightly negative assessment of what Solomon is saying here. And, and I'm, I'm going I'm to argue throughout this passage that Solomon is not denying his sinfulness. He's going to confess his sinfulness all through this book, not least in chapter 7, verse 20, when he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. All right, he's included in that. And Solomon believes that the wages of sin is death, and he talks about how he's going to die. So he's acknowledging I'm a sinner, I'm going to die. He's acknowledging that. But I don't think in 2, 1 through 11, he's presenting a negative assessment of what he attempted to do. So I'm going to try to gently push back on the ways that some translations really take these statements in a negative direction. I mean, one of the translations, um, the, the New English translation, renders, renders this particular statement like a hedonistic pursuit and it, and it renders the word joy here, self-indulgent pleasure. And, and I don't think that's what Solomon is describing. So what he's, what he's, what he's, when he says, come, I will test you with pleasure, we have to say, all right, what does he do? He does the stuff here in verses 1 through 11. And as we read through here, we're not going to see him give himself up to excessive dissipation and drunkenness and partying all the time. No, he's going to engage in these magnificent projects. 
So, so I don't think pleasure is the best reading. I think joy would be a better rendering. Come now, I will test you with joy. And then the ESV renders this, enjoy yourself. And I think this is part of that same, you know, slight tendency in a, in a sort of self-indulgent hedonism. The, um, the, the, the Hebrew text literally says here, see good. And I'm going to suggest that there's an important connection here with Genesis 1. Because seven times in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And then God saw that it was good. Seven times we read that phrase that God saw that it was good. And in Genesis 1, 31, God saw everything that he, was made, that he had made. And behold, it was very good. So I think this statement, see good. It's as though Solomon is saying, set yourself to imitate the Lord. Look at his creation. And then discern from creation and the scriptures what you should do as the new Adam king of Israel. I think that's what he's doing here. So that we got this joy test and he commands himself, see good. And then he's going to anticipate the conclusion that he's going to come to down in 2.11. When he says, but behold, this also was vanity or this also was breath or this also was vapor. So he's going he's gonna to test himself with joy. He's going to see what is good, but he's acknowledging from the outset, it's like vapor. It's like breath. And breath, you know, as soon as you inhale it, you exhale it again, and then it's gone. And the minute we die, as that book title has it, breath becomes air. Breath is it's insubstantial, it's immaterial, and, and it's fleeting. And then he says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And you, you remember that in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he associates mad, madness with folly. And so here he seems to be associating laughter with folly. And I think he's dismissing laughter. I, I think what, essentially what he's saying is, I'm not playing around. This is not a time for jokes. The test that I'm setting for myself, the attempt to see good, this isn't going to be a party where everyone's laughing. This is going to be a serious-minded pursuit, I would say, of the true, the good, and the beautiful. This is going to be a serious attempt to display God's glory in God's creation. I think that's what Solomon is saying. And then his next statement here in verse 2, and of pleasure. Again, we got joy. And of joy, and here's... Here's another place where I think the translation is slightly skewing in a, in a more cynical or more negative assessment than is necessary because this phrase, what use is it, could also be literally translated, what is it doing? Or what is this doing? That's the way I think we should, we should understand this question. What is joy? If you want to go with pleasure, that's fine, but don't think in terms of like dissipation and drunkenness and worldly, sinful indulgence in the flesh kind of pleasure. Think in terms of real pleasure, the kind of pleasure that Solomon pursues in verses 4 through 8. Real achievement, real satisfaction in real accomplishments. Think of that kind of pleasure, okay? That's what he's, that's, that's what he's going to set himself to. And, and I, think he's, I think he's asking a probing question about what causes joy and how joy works that the way they, they translate it in the ESV and the CSB and the NET is even worse. The way that they translate it 
it really sounds like a pragmatic question that, that concludes, oh, this is useless. This doesn't accomplish anything. And that's the way the NET translates it. It says, I said of joy, it accomplishes nothing. Like, that's no good for anything. But, you know, if you consider the rest of the book, again and again and again and again, Solomon is going to commend joy. Just look at 2, 24 through 26. There's nothing better for, for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So finding enjoyment in your work is good. And then he says, for apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So I think Solomon is affirming joy. And for that reason, I think it's a lot easier to square the question, what is this doing with the affirmation of joy than it is to, to square the conclusion, well, this is useless. What use is joy with all this affirmation of joy? So I, I, I would suggest that we should think of this not in terms of a pragmatic, this isn't any good, this doesn't accomplish anything, but rather in terms of a probing, how does joy work? What is this doing? How, how does this happen? And you know, if you think about it, when you feel that, that, that inexplicable lift in your spirit, this gladness of heart, it's, it's really a mystery. It is a mysterious blessing of God to experience joy. And there are so many factors in it. There's hope, there's faith, there's confidence in God, there's optimism about the future. So much goes into joy. And, and I think that Solomon is pondering these things when he says, what is this doing? John Piper is well known for saying, all men seek joy. Everyone seeks joy. Everyone wants to be happy. What are you doing to pursue joy? Where are you looking for it? As we're going to see here in this passage, I think Solomon knows where to look for joy. He knows how to set out to find the joy that he's pondering. He knows from the scripture, and I think he knows from creation. And that brings us to verse 3. So he says here in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, from what he's going to say, I think it is absolutely evident that these, these are not the words of a man who says something like this. I got sick of life, and I tried to escape, so I just got myself drunk all the time. That is not the way he's talking, and that is not the project on which he's engaging. Look at what he says. How to cheer my heart, my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. You cannot be wise and drunk at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive possibilities. You can either be drunk or you can be wine, uh, you can be wise, you can't be the, the two at the same time. So my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. So the, 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 the main statement is, I searched with my heart, and that's complemented by two modifiers, how to cheer my body and how to lay hold on folly. And both of those are being also modified by my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So how do you try to lay hold on folly with your heart guiding you with wisdom? I think what he's doing is, is pondering why do people do foolish things? What motivates this? And I think he's also maybe pondering, 
what's the line between wisdom and folly? And, and, and there, there may be other things at work here, how folly works, what happens in those who enact it, to those who enact it. He's trying to, to get his hands around this so that he fully understands the difference between wisdom and folly. And in all this, his heart is guiding him with wisdom. And then he goes on to say, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, if I'm correct that what he's, what he's doing when he says, see good, it, it's, is imitating God, then I, I would suggest that what he's doing is he's trying, determine, trying to determine what kinds of human behaviors are actually good for people to engage in. And I think one of the questions is, is it good for people to drink wine? And, and again, again and again through the book, he's going to say things like what we see in 224. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink. And I think in view of 9-7, where he says, go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine. I wouldn't translate this with a merry heart. Again, I think that's skewing in the wrong direction. Literally, the text simply says, go drink your wine with a good heart. And so if you drink wine with a good heart, you don't get drunk. You, you, you can't have a good heart. I mean, the heart in the Bible, as we know, is the, it's really the center of our being. A good heart doesn't get itself drunk because the Bible, and I think Solomon is taking this for granted, the Bible forbids and condemns drunkenness. But he seems to affirm this moderate, drink your wine with a good heart. Uh, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work. Enjoy your life, he seems to be saying. So what's good for people to do? Under heaven, during the few days of their life. This is, this is again, another indication you're going to die. Your days are numbered. And you live under heaven. You live within the constraints of the created order, which he laid out in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. He, he outlined the created order. And, and so within the, within the constraints of human life and within the allotted time that you have, what is good for people to do? That's what he seems to be exp exploring here. And again, I think his conclusions to that question, what is good for people to do, are going to be articulated as he moves through the book, particularly in these so-called joy passages where he affirms the goodness of enjoying your work and enjoying your food and drink. That brings us to the central section. That's the outer frame, uh, two, one through three, where we've got joy, well, first breath, vanity, and then joy, or as the ESV has pleasure, and then wisdom. And now we come to the, the central section, and we, we begin in verses four through six with Solomon's work of forming. So in verses four through six, He's going to describe the world that he built. And uh, the first thing that he says here in verse 4 is, I made great works. I think what he's saying is he took no half measures and he attempted no small tasks. I made great works. It, it, it's as though he realized God has blessed me with wisdom. God has made me king of Israel. God has given me all this wealth that my father accumulated for the building of the temple, let's go. We're going to go big. 
That's, it, I think that's essentially what he's saying as he assesses his life's work. I made great works. And then he says, I built houses. And, and I think this is a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, 14. 7, 12 through 14. Uh, you remember 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build a house for the Lord, a house, same term, for Yahweh. And initially, Nathan the prophet says, go, do all that's in your heart. And, and then Nathan comes back to David and he says, the Lord has said that you're not to build a house for his name, um, but the Lord is going to build a house for you. And then he talks about how the Lord is going to raise up David's seed after him and he will build a house for Yahweh's name. And then in 1 Chronicles 29, we read about how David amassed all this wealth and, and specifically declared, I brought all this together for Solomon to build the temple. And I think that's important because, because I think David understands God's purposes as he sets out to build that temple. Have, have you thought about why David would want to build a temple? Why would David want to build the temple? I think David understands Adam's job in the garden. Remember the Lord said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. So I think Adam's job is essentially to cover the dry lands with God's glory like the waters cover the seas so that from the rising of the sun to the, in, to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord will be praised. Well, he gets himself thrown out of the garden. He, he's banished from the realm of life, and, and he can't do the job. And, and it's, as though Adam, it's as though David comes to realize God has given us this land of promise as a reclamation project. God still wants to cover the dry lands with his glory, and it starts from the land of Canaan, and the focal point is going to be the temple. Deuteronomy 12, the Lord instructs Israel that he's going to choose a place to set his name. And it's as though David understands the name of the Lord is going to be magnified in that place and that his glory is going to radiate out until, as Psalm 2 says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So that's, that's the project. Reclaim the world for God's glory starting from the focal point of the temple. I think David understands all this. That's why he wants to build it. I think Solomon understands all this. And that's why he sets out to build the temple. He also builds his own house, as we read in, in 1 Kings uh, chapters 5 through 8. He builds his own house, and he builds the temple. And then he tells us, oh, I, I need to say one more thing here. What's the significance of the temple? Well, as, as we've talked about many times, the temple is a symbol of the cosmos. Uh, this is why Psalm 78, 69 says that the Lord built his sanctuary, that is the temple, like the heavens, like the earth. In other words, the, the, the cosmos, the universe, is depicted symbolically in the structure of the temple. So it's as though in building the temple, Solomon is building a small-scale creation. So, so in a way... When God created the world, he built his house. And thus, Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? You see the logic there? I built the cosmos as my house. What is this little temple that you're going to try to do? And so, by building the temple, Solomon is imitating the Lord in, as it were, building a small-scale version of creation. And then... You remember that in Genesis 2, 8, as we read in our Old Testament reading this morning, we read of how 
the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. Well, look at what Solomon does next here in Ecclesiastes 2.4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Then we keep reading into verse 5. I made myself gardens. Um, the word for planted there, same term that you find in Genesis 2.8, when the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. The word for gardens there, it's the plural form of the same word translated garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. So Solomon, it's as though, just like the Lord, he builds the creation in Genesis 1, he plants the garden in Genesis 2. Solomon builds the houses, and then he plants the vineyards and the gardens. And then the text next says, I made myself gardens and parks. And this word that's translated parks in English is this Hebrew word pardesim. And you can hear in the pardes, it's where we get our word paradise from. A paradise is an enclosed uh, garden. It's an enclosed place of life. It's as though Solomon is just restating, uh, I made this realm that was going to teem with life and beauty, that was going to be fruitful and, and, and bear fruit and and, and the living creatures within it would multiply because, because of the abounding life in that place. And then he says next, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 verse 11 says that the Lord uh, made to spring up trees um, of all kinds of fruit. Uh, bearing fruit, each according to its kind. So the language of fruit trees here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 5, is the same terminology used to describe the fruit trees in, in Genesis 1.11. And we also read of those trees in Genesis 2. As you'll remember from our, from our sermon text, we read there, uh, verse 9 of Genesis 2, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then continuing here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon next says in verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. The word that's translated growing there is the same term back in Genesis 2.9 to describe the trees springing up. So the springing up trees in Genesis 2.9 are matched by the growing trees in Ecclesiastes. And then what do we read next in Genesis 2? Well, we read about those rivers, don't we? Uh, this, this one uh, original river that then divided into the seven rivers, and it's as though Solomon is matching the Lord's activity by making these pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So I think that Solomon is engaged in a point-for-point parallel, a mirroring of what the Lord himself does. And that brings us to 2.7, where the ESV renders this, I bought male and female slaves. Now, uh, I think the translation slave is, sli is unfortunate, uh, because this is, this is this Hebrew term eved, it's the same Hebrew term that you have in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will act wisely. And then you keep reading through Isaiah 53, and it's clear that the servant of the Lord is the king of Israel. This is the same term used in the expression, the servant of Yahweh, when Moses is identified as the servant of Yahweh, and Joshua, and David. All these major figures are identified as Yahweh's eved, 
and, and I think slave of Yahweh conveys the wrong idea. Uh, now, even if you want to take this as slave or slaves, um, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this right now in this sermon. I'd be happy to talk with you about this later. Um, I would just note that in the Old Testament, slavery, the whole system of slavery is boundaried by the Ten Commandments and the covenant in which the people of Israel are in. And the Ten Commandments are going to prohibit the kinds of abuses that make slavery heinous. So if you take away all the abuse, like the physical abuse, killing them or beating them, which they're, they're, all that's, all that's, there are punishments spelled out for that in the law of Moses. If you take away the adultery, man-stealing, all these kinds of things, you, you're kind of left with an economic arrangement where one person works for another person who is providing them with food and shelter and clothing. And it's almost like a, 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 an exchange where you're a perpetual worker for me, and instead of paying you on, in currency, I'm paying you by providing for your life in these various ways. So I think there, slavery in the Old Testament uh, is, is, is not like slavery as it, as it existed in the American South. Um, it wasn't race-based. Um, every seven years, the slaves went free, and, and there are other factors that, that make it very different. And again, I'd be happy to talk further about that. One more observation I want to make about this term slave. Uh, so the noun form of this word, eved, gets translated servant or slave. And there's a cognate verb, avad, which is actually the word used in Genesis 2.15. When it says, the Lord God put the man in the garden to work it. That's the avad. You could almost say, the Lord God put the man in the garden to serve it or to minister to it. Because that word avad is used to describe the way that the priests minister at the tabernacle. And so from all this, I would suggest that in the same way the Lord forms creation, and then he makes people as his, we might say, avadim, as his servants, not as his slaves, but as, his, as those who will serve him, so also Solomon. He forms his creation, and then he, he gets people who are going to inhabit the realm that he has built I bought male and female slaves, it says. I, I would say, I, I would prefer this, this be translated something along the lines of, I, um, I acquired servants and made servants. And then it goes on to say, and, and had slaves who were born in my house. I mean, this literally the text says, uh, sons of the house were to me. Well, what this means is that the servants have been fruitful and multiplied. That's what, that's what someone born in the house is. It's an offspring of someone who's part of the household. And so uh, just as the Lord commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply, uh, Solomon's servants have been fruitful and multiplied. And then he goes on, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. And, and you read in Genesis 1 and 2 about how the Lord made all the living creatures. And he commanded them also to be fruitful and multiply. And then he, he says at the end of verse 7, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he has surpassed any who, come, any who came before him. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold. We read just a moment ago in Genesis 2, 10 and 11, about how uh, one of those rivers goes through the land of Havilah, and the gold of that land is good. And bdellium and the onyx stone are there. So these precious stones that mark God's original creation are now matched by Solomon 
compiling for himself these treasures of silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. And then the, almost every English translation renders this next phrase, and many concubines. And, and I think what's happening is they are reflecting their awareness of what 1 Kings 11 tells us about Solomon's many concubines. But this Hebrew, this, this, this Hebrew expression, it, it is not the normal Hebrew way of referring to concubines. And if you're looking at an ESV, you can see there's a footnote on that word concubines. And down in the lower margin, it says, the meaning of the Hebrew word is uncertain. Um, every scholar that you read, you, you, you go look at the commentators. Every commentator is going to say, we can, we can offer no definitive translation of this phrase. And then there are those who will suggest, and, and this is the way that I think it should be taken, that the syntax, the way this is phrased, and the terms used don't point toward human beings being what, are, what is referenced here, but rather to things of finery, like one, one scholar offers the translation, a fine wine table and settings. So, you know, this would refer to like fine china or maybe nice uh, bowls and pitchers that you would fill nice goblets with or something like that. And, and I think that's probably, that's more likely in view than all the women that, I'm not denying that Solomon did what 1 Kings 11 says he did. I just don't think that's what he's talking about here. Um, and then he assesses, so there's, the, there's, the, there's the, the, center, the center of the text, verses 4 through 8. He's formed the creation, verses 4 through um, 6, and then he fills his creation, verses 7 and 8. And now he gives himself a grade in verses 9 through 11. He tells us about his results, what resulted. He says here in verse 9, So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12 says of Solomon. Um, the Lord promised Solomon, I'm, I'm going to make you greater than any who have been before you, and no one who comes after you will surpass you. He says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. N notice how. In, in verse 3, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Now verse 9, my wisdom remained with me. And consider what he's been describing in verses 4 through 8. It's almost as though he's describing himself engaging in God's creation project of forming and filling, and his wisdom is right there with him. Does this remind you of another passage in the Bible? If you're familiar with Proverbs 8, Verses 22 through 31, wisdom is right there with the Lord as he makes the world. And I, I mean, who's the author of Proverbs 8? So, so I think that Solomon is doing this on purpose. He's depicting himself trying to follow in the Lord's own footsteps. And let's just consider this for a moment. And, and I want to consider this in a way that seeks to urge you to be an imitator of God as a dearly loved child. Did God need the world? No, God did not need the world. We can talk to Dr. Clanch about this, about the doctrine of aseity, about his absolute self-sufficiency. He, he needs nothing to sustain him. He needs nothing to, he's not lonely. He needs nothing to gratify him. God does not need the world. Why did he make the world? For the good of other people. 
God made the world as an act of loving self-giving. The, the creation and history is God giving himself to and for others. And that's what Solomon is doing. I think that Solomon is imitating the Lord in loving self-giving. So if you're around and you hear me talk to my kids, you'll probably hear me say at some point, don't live for yourself. Live for others. Be mindful of others. Take other people into account. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's what we're called to. I think that's what Solomon's doing. Um, this brings us to verse 10. And again, um, you could take this in a negative direction. I think you'd be wrong to do so. The ESV renders this in whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Uh, he goes, he, the next phrase, I kept my heart from no, and I would say joy. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. So I think the, the seeing that he didn't restrain his eyes from is connected to the the enjoyment of the toil that he did not restrain his heart from. So I think we should connect this statement about his eyes, what he didn't deny his eyes, back up to verse 1, see good. And, and I, I think what he's saying here is, I looked all into creation, and it's awesome. And I didn't take my eyes off any of God's glory and beauty in the world, and I indulged myself in it, and I relished the doing of the work. It was magnificent to be engaged in those grand projects. So he says here in verse 11, my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Maybe you've had this experience of feeling like I was made for this. This is what God built me for. I think I, well, I know without a doubt that my wife has felt that way about being a mother. She was built for this. She relished this. And, and I know that many of you, in your various vocations and callings, the things that you get to do, you feel like, this is what I was made to do. That's a glorious joy. It's magnificent. And I think that's what Solomon is describing. And then look at what he says at the end of verse 10. And this was my reward for all my toil. Now, uh, what he's going to say next, verse 11, he says in verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. He's not denying the joy of doing it. Okay, we can read those two verses as complimentary. But consider what he says there. I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. He, he no doubt studied architecture before building the temple and his own house. He no doubt studied things like soils and seeds and how to put gardens together. So you can think of all the labor of figuring out how best to do these things and then contemplating how do I motivate these people to get the job done and then there's the actual toil expended in the doing of it, overseeing all these projects. And it's, it's as though he's, again, when he says I turned, the ESV renders it, well, the ESV renders it, then I considered all that my hands had done. The text literally says, then I turned to all that I had done. And it's almost as though he's moving his head and, and surveying all that he has accomplished and taking it all in. And when he says, behold, 
it was vanity or it was breath, I don't think we should understand him as saying this was meaningless. This was pointless. I think he's rather saying something like this. I saw that I didn't alter the inclination in the human heart to sin. And I saw that everything that I had accomplished doesn't change the fact that all people are going to die. And I saw that everything that I had done did not build heaven and did not usher people into the new heavens and new earth, into resurrection bodies, to dwell in the direct presence of God forever. And ultimately, I think that's what he's trying to accomplish as he takes up Adam's task. He, he sees God gave Adam a job to do, to fill the world with God's glory so that all over the world, people dwell in the direct presence of God. And I think that's what Solomon's trying to accomplish. And he says, vapor, breath. I couldn't do it. I gave it everything I had, and I had more than anybody before me and anybody that's going to come after me, and I couldn't build the new heavens and new earth and give people resurrection bodies with pure hearts to only do righteousness all the time. I think that's essentially what he's doing when he says there in verse 11, behold, all was vanity as the ESV renders it, all was vapor or all was breath and a striving after wind. And then when he says, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun, I think what he's saying is, I couldn't move the needle on that dial to get people into God's presence, there to dwell with him, direct access to God always. I think that's what he's saying when he says there was nothing to be gained. Because again, over and over again in the book, he's going to commend joy. And he's essentially going to say, what I got in verse 10, uh, this was my reward for all my toil. I found pleasure. I found joy in all my toil. This is the best man can do. That's what you got. There's a lot more that we could say about this passage. There's a lot more I'd love to say about this passage. But as we conclude, um, I would invite you to join Solomon in the recognition that you can't build the new creation either. You know, I think a lot of times when people, when people fantasize or when they dream about the future, it's as though we're trying to, to imagine for ourselves a heaven that we want to live in. And, and in this heaven that we want to live in, people treat us the way that we want to be treated. You notice that kind of turns on its head. Treat others as you would want to be treated. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. And, and then sometimes we set out to build this heaven for ourselves. And this results in a great deal of vexation and frustration. We can't make our lives the heaven that we long for. But there is one. There is one who can raise the dead. There is one who lived a perfectly righteous life. There is one who gave himself for us and promised that he was going away to build the Father's house, to make it ready, and then to come get us and take us to be with him where he is. He is the new Adam, the builder of the house, the keeper of the city. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, labor, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps the house, those who keep watch, keep watch in vain. Solomon says, says in 127, Psalm 127. So I would invite you to respond to this passage in two main ways. The first and most important is to stop trying to build heaven 
for yourself and to give yourself fully to Jesus, to put yourself in his hands. Let him be the creator, let him be the new Adam, and you be his servant. And if you don't know Jesus or you haven't publicly declared your faith in Jesus, we would love to offer you this opportunity to declare to everyone that he is your Lord and Savior and Master. And we'd love for you to make that declaration. We'll baptize you as a sign to everybody that that's where you are. That's the first thing. The second thing, I would invite you to, if you're not consciously thinking of your life as an opportunity to live out being someone made in the image of God, seeking to fill the world with God's glory, make that your identity and embrace that as your purpose. And we will learn wisdom from Solomon. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, for the wisdom that they impart. We thank you, Lord, that though we would never have dreamed of these things, you have revealed them in your word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us skill at life and understanding, true knowledge, that we might honor you and glorify you by faith in Christ. By the power of the Spirit, amen.